Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Have a seat, everybody. Good morning. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles if you have them with you or your apps or whatever it is you'd like to read along with or just listen. I don't have a slide for this. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4 and the first 12 verses of that chapter. So it's Acts 4, 1, verse 1 through verse 12. And just to set this up, in the previous chapter, um, Peter and John have uh, seen a miracle happen. Uh, The man who is lame for 40 plus years, 40 years or so, uh, he was healed by the Lord, and, uh, and then the events take place starting in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, gets a little more serious. So here's, here's what Luke writes. And as they were speaking to the people, uh, Peter was actually preaching the second Christian sermon ever. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple uh, and, uh, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the name of Jesus given to us that we might be saved. We acknowledge there is no other name. And this story seems remote from us this morning, Father, so we pray that you, by your Spirit, will teach us what we need to know and help us to live what we hear about in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. So I'm wondering if you have heard of the law in Massachusetts that has outlawed Baptist churches. You don't believe me, do you? Well, you shouldn't. It's a 400-year-old law. I still don't know if it's on the books, but in 1645, that was the case. Baptist churches were outlawed because Baptists, they just didn't seem to get along. They were called dissenters. They've been very good at it ever since. And there were three issues that the Baptists caused trouble for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. First of all, they did not baptize infants. It was believer's baptism. 
That was number one. Number two was they refused to pay taxes to the state in order to support state churches. And the third was they did not believe that you needed a license from the state in order to preach the gospel. So the Massachusetts uh, government at the time called them, uh, let's see, incendiaries of the commonwealth and troublers of churches in all places and expelled anybody who was a Baptist from this particular state. Now, there was one fellow who became very famous when he was expelled. His name was Roger Williams. Have you heard of that name? You should have heard about it up here. Roger Williams was the pastor at the Salem Congregational Church, and uh, they expelled him, not just from the church, but from the Commonwealth. So he did what every good descending Baptist did. He went down I-95 to a place called Providence, uh, he named the place, of course. He got, uh, he got authority from the King of England, and he created a whole new colony called Rhode Island. Absolutely. And then he planted a church, a Baptist church. It was the first Baptist church in America. And do you know what he called it? He was a clever namer. He called it the first Baptist church of America. And it's still there today. You can actually go there and visit. It's quite the building. So, I wonder how many of you have ever been canceled or trolled or um, banned from anything. I, I, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I, I, there was, there was a, a thread that I was following, uh, a pro-life thread, a thread, and um, I just decided, well, I'm going to put in there Psalm 139, and man, did I get slammed by people who hated that verse. I don't know why, it's just... Anyway, I got slammed. Maybe it's happened to you on Facebook where a family member will, you know, you're posting all these kind of Christian things and really nice sentiments and stuff like that, and, they, and then, they, they, they know, then you get the message. And it says, you know, I really don't appreciate what you're putting on here. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the kinds of oppressive things that you're having to say. I wish you wouldn't do that anymore because my Jesus is not the same as your Jesus. It's happened. It's happened. Now, we all love the promises of God, right? You love the promises of God? Do you? Let me hear a robust yes. yes. Good. We love the promises of God. God promises to be faithful to us. He promises to provide for us. He promises to care for us. He promises so many things, so many promises of God. But there's one promise that we tend to sort of ignore, and that's one that Jesus gave in um, Luke chapter 21, verse 12. This is what he said. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And here's the important part. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, that is, to Jesus. There's a change in the atmosphere here when we come to chapter 4. The whole tone of Luke's writing changes now. You can almost feel a chill in the air because persecution is the new context for the church, and it's been that way ever since. We are still in a context of opposition to the gospel, from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to this morning. And this hostility against the gospel is our context for an opportunity to proclaim Christ. That's the idea. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, this is, the, this is the idea that I want you to take home. Opposition is an opportunity 
for us to proclaim Christ to a dying world. So I want to dissect this, uh, these first 12 verses. Uh, the key phrase that we're going to look at is uh, the phrase, the name. Uh, actually, Luke uses that phrase about a dozen times in, from chapter 2 to chapter 5. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking, this is, the, this is the theme that Luke wants us to get. But I want to look at this particular chapter, or these 12 verses, as uh, uh, scenes that are played out. And the first scene is they are arrested for the name. That's verses 1 through 4. If you're taking notes, this, this might help you a little bit. Arrested for the name, verses 1 through 4. Interrogated for the name, verses 5 through 7. And the revolutionary name, verses 8 through 12. So let's take a look at this uh, bit by bit. Here is the first verse the, where Peter and John are arrested. And as they were speaking, so Peter's right in the middle of his sermon. I, I doubt he's even finished, but right in the middle of his sermon, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come upon them. So we know the location. They're in the temple. We know the time of the healing of this lame man is 3 p.m. And Peter is explaining to everybody. It's really a sermon, but he's explaining to everybody, how did this happen? They want to know, how did this take place? And so he tells them. So when that's going on, we have this little phrase there that says, the uh, temple guards came upon them. Like, oh, there's a couple of guys preaching. No, not at all like that. This is the SWAT team of the temple. They descended on these guys. They, they got roughed up a little bit. I mean, this is not a polite arrest. You know, the guards didn't go over and say, hey, would you mind putting on these handcuffs for us while we take you to jail? No, they probably grabbed them, picked them up, threw them down, whatever. And I want you to notice, they even arrested the healed man. Why? What in the world did he do? So they cart these guys off over to the, uh, the jail. Now, there's this group that Luke mentions, the Sadducees, that are along in this crowd. Now, who are these guys? The Sanhedrin, which is sort of the religious supreme court of the nation, is made up of two parties. One of them are the Pharisees, and the other one are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were, uh, their, their main focus of ministry was the temple. They stayed in Jerusalem. They focused every, all of their efforts of ministry on the temple. They were the elite of the religious leadership. They're highly educated, and they were very liberal in their doctrinal statements. They were also very politicized. They were cozied up to the Roman government because they got so much benefit by being um, alongside all of the power of the place. But they were theologically materialists. Now, what I mean by that is that they believe there's no such thing as afterlife. There's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no such thing as a resurrection. This life is all there is. And when you die, that's it. It's over. So party on, because that's all we get. So that was their position. They only, and this, and this is important, this is why they concluded there's no resurrection. They only received or accepted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Pentateuch. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. And they dismissed all the rest after that. They did not believe it was God's word. And so they concluded, well, there's no resurrection mentioned in the first five books of the Bible, so forget about it. Now, the Pharisees were different. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. These were men whose main responsibility was in the synagogues that were spread around the nation. 
That was their main focus, and they accepted all of the Old Testament books from Genesis all the way to Malachi. They believed all those books. And what, dif- what made them different from the Sadducees is they were supernaturalists. They did believe in an afterlife. They did believe in a resurrection. In fact, you can see when, when Martha's brother Lazarus died and Jesus showed up at the tomb, she was well-schooled by the Pharisees. Remember the question that Jesus asked her? He said, don't you believe that your brother will rise from the dead? And she said, yes, I do, on the last day. That's what the Pharisees taught. There was no such thing as resurrection until the last day. And that's when Jesus said, well, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus walked out of the tomb and it freaked everybody out because that's not supposed to happen until the last day. But it happened that day. So the difference between these two groups is huge. The opposition to Jesus was from the Pharisees. The opposition now to the church, the new church, are the Sadducees. Oh, by the way, it's Father's Day, so uh, I get one dumb dad joke. Okay, you can leave. You, you don't have to hear it. Look, it's my joke. And, and Darren Violet told me it was a really good dad joke but he already knew it. Okay, so here it is. Do you know why they're called Sadducees? Because they don't believe in the resurrection or an afterlife, so they're sad. You see? No, no. Now you're just patronizing me. Yes. Okay, okay, I promise I will not do that again in this sermon. All right. So let's take a look now at uh, verse 2. What is it that's motivating this arrest? Why, why the SWAT team on these guys? Greatly annoyed, yes, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. That's one. And proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead, that's two. So there are two things that they, they were upset about. Number one, they were envious. that The province of teaching belonged to the Sadducees, not to some country bumpkins from the Galilee who don't have anything in terms of degrees except being fishermen. So they were jealous because there's a crowd here. Remember, Luke tells us 5,000 people got saved. There's probably more people than that, but 5,000 of them came to faith in Christ. That's a huge crowd. And they were jealous when they saw that. But the second thing is that they taught the resurrection from the dead in Christ. This is what really annoyed them the most. They don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that they had killed this Nazarene Jesus. And now all of a sudden there's all these people talking about him once again. So they're thrown in jail overnight, verse 3. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. Now look at this, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000 people. So these guys are cooling their heels in jail overnight, even the healed man, but notice how Luke phrases this. He said, all who heard believed. That doesn't mean everybody who was there believed, but enough people believed so that Luke could count noses somehow, and he got to 5,000. Luke's lesson here for us is you can arrest, you can kill the messengers of the gospel, but there's one thing that will never happen in all of history. You will never be able to put the gospel in jail, keep it silent, or kill it. It will succeed. It will always do its work to the end of the age. That's 
what Luke wants us to hear in that verse. All right, let's move on now to scene two. Scene two is they are interrogated for the name. So the guys are fetched out of prison. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So who, who are these people anyway? Uh, well, remember, this is the elite religious leadership and officials of the day. Rulers, elders, teachers, Annas, the high priest, very interesting. Annas is an old man right now. He used to be the high priest. He retains the title of high priest, but he was deposed by the Roman government something like 15 years before. In AD 15, he was moved aside, and I suppose they gave him the name Emeritus. You know, like we do that with really old pastors, and I'm not there yet, but someday I'll probably get Emeritus Pastor. I, I know of a church that has an Emeritus Pastor, and his name is on it, uh, but the guy's been dead for 10 years, so... I'm not thinking that guy's a very active pastor. <laughs> so Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, is the high priest. And then there's these two other fellows, John and Alexander. We have no idea who they are. There's a whole bunch of people from the family, and they're all standing there. And here's the question that really changes the whole tone of this particular meeting in verse 7. Um, and when they set him in the midst, they inquired by what power... Or what name did you do this? Now, we're not real familiar with this, but this is a gotcha question. This is eerily familiar to Peter and John. Jesus was asked this kind of question often. By what authority are you doing this? So why is this question so important? The, the answer to that is that they are being baited into the sin of blasphemy. How's that? Well, you can, when you go home, you can study for yourself. Read, just read Deuteronomy chapter 13 and you'll see. Here's a synopsis of that chapter. The people of God were instructed, if anybody comes along and performs a miracle or a sign, a self-proclaimed prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and they perform a sign or a wonder, and, it does, and, 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 and then they tell you to go follow another god, don't do it, the penalty is death. Because the only God we follow is Yahweh. That was the name of God revealed in the Old Testament to Moses and all the people of God. And what um, Peter is about to say is not the name Yahweh, but the name Jesus. That's a death penalty. As far as his, his audience is concerned, that's a death penalty. And those, so they're baiting him into that. Now, Peter... He doesn't, he, doesn't take up, he doesn't take up the bait. He, just, he does not care. Peter is so different right, right now. Can, you know, what are they going to do? You remember? I, I can almost imagine he and Peter, uh, John and Peter, sitting in jail at night going, hey, John, what do you think we ought to do? I mean, we're, we're going to be on trial tomorrow, and, and we know what this is all about. We've seen this before. So what do you think we should do? And I, I can imagine John, remember, he's the son of thunder who wants to call down hailstones on people. And he says, well, Peter, you don't have a sword to chop off people's ears anymore, so I don't know. Got any clue? But Peter had a clue. John had a clue, I'm sure. They were, they were post-Pentecost men. They were not pre-Pentecost men. And I'm sure the healed, the healed man is sitting there wondering, what in the world are these guys going to do next? And so then Peter... He's answering the question now. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Now, Peter knows, Peter knows his audience very, very well. And he understands that what they need to hear is the gospel. He's taking this as his opportunity to answer the question. And they need four important corrections because their assumptions about Jesus are all wrong. The first correction is, this is a good deed. Right? If you would ask any Israelite, any Sadducee, any Pharisee, should we be doing good deeds, they all would have said, absolutely. They knew Jesus went about doing good deeds. And he said, we're doing good deeds. You know why we're doing good deeds? Because we have a good God. This God that we serve, look down on this man who has been lame like this for 40 years. He can't take care of himself. There's apparently nobody in this entire place that will take care of him. He's got to sit and beg out in the open up against this gate for alms so that he can, he can live and eat. And, and God looked at him. God looked at him. And he said, I want to heal that man. That's a good deed. Don't you think so, gentlemen? I'm sure they would have gone, uh-huh. So he's driving home. We're supposed to be doing good deeds. So if that's why we're on trial, then I guess fine. And then in verse 10, he says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name, and here he goes, if, if Peter had said at this point, by the name of Yahweh, the case would have been closed. Everybody would have gone home. He doesn't do that. Remember, he remembered Jesus' words. Here's an opportunity to witness to me. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The source of the power, the source of this healing is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He has made this man whole. And what's happening here is really, I think, just really amazing. Because what Peter is saying is, this man, now made whole, who is leaping and praising God and standing here with us, he's standing upright for the first time all, in all of his life, he's strong. This man is a picture of what salvation in Christ looks like. You were lame, you couldn't do anything for yourself, you, 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 you couldn't stand up. You, 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 there's nothing you could do, but salvation makes you whole. That, I think it's like a visual image for these guys to understand what it means to be saved. A healed man is a picture of being saved in Christ. We sing that song in Amazing Grace, Once I Was Blind, Now I See. We might as well sing Once I Was Lame, Now I Walk. This is what God does when he saves sinners. He makes them whole at the deepest level of our need, forgiven, guilt of sin cleansed, reconciled, God's wrath removed from us. A healed body in this man was a visual aid of salvation. This man is a living illustration of what the gospel is and is not. The gospel is not really good advice on how to turn over a new leaf. It's not self-help. It's not a message to do your very best so you can get to heaven. No, it's not even an example of how to live. The gospel is not anything about what we do, but what God has already done for us. It's not about what we do, but what God has done. Only God can save. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, tells a wonderful story, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm ripping it off from him. Just, the scene is the crucifixion of Christ. 
And Jesus has uh, uh, two guys on the, uh, you know, one guy on the left, one guy on the right. And remember, one of the thieves said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. Now the man dies. And he opens up his eyes. He's standing in front of the pearly gates. Here we go, right? Here's the story. He's standing in front of the pearly gates. And an angel comes up and says, hi, how are you doing? What are you doing here? He says, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know where I am. Okay, well, uh, let me ask you a question. Are you a church member? What? What's a church? Uh, okay. Uh, listen, did you ever have like a membership class to become a church member? What are you talking about? Just hang on here. I have to go get my supervisor. So the angel leaves. He goes over and he gets Clarence. Says, let, let that sit with you for a while. If you don't know who Clarence is, next Christmas, watch. It's a wonderful life. You'll get it. So Clarence comes over and talks to the man. Okay, I, I see we have a little bit of a problem here, but I, I'm sure we can work things out. Tell me something. Um, can you tell me what it means that you are justified by faith in Christ alone? Uh, no. Oh, I see. Well, tell me, have you ever been baptized in the name of Jesus? Nah, I really didn't have the chance. Okay. How'd you get here? He said, well, the guy in the middle cross told me I could come. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. The guy on the cross told me I could come. If you're a believer, he told you you could come. What did you do? Nothing. Nothing. Well, you did one thing. All your sins were put on him. And you hardly even did that. And now you are in the family of God. The gospel is not about what we have done. The gospel is about what God has done for us. Okay. Now... Peter starts to get pretty serious here as he continues his remarks. This Jesus is the stone that you that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting here from Psalm 118, verse 22. It's the stone metaphor. It's a perfect quote. And the stone metaphor, I'm, I, I don't know if they understood it, but Peter understood it. And Peter understood it this way. Jesus is that cornerstone. He's the stone that you guys have rejected. Uh, when, when they were, would build a, a, a building, a wall out of, out of the limestones or whatever that they would use, there, there would be quarrymen who would be chiseling those stones into the shape for the next block. And if, if they did something wrong and they cut it off the wrong way, they would just put it aside. And P Peter is saying that. You think he wasn't worth it. You were looking at him and you were thinking, a dead savior doesn't matter. That is ridiculous. We're just going to put him aside. He's not a king. He's not a real king. He's got no power. He's weak. He's a criminal. He's been killed. How in the world could that be our Savior? But the beautiful thing about what Peter is saying here is that even though Jesus on the cross looks defeated, he's your salvation. He's your salvation. And there is no other salvation to be found except in him. And that's what Peter says next. There is no salvation in anyone else for there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. 
And that's the fourth correction they needed to hear. He is wading into the exclusive waters of salvation. Jesus alone. Jesus alone. Nothing else. Jesus alone saves. And this would have been heresy to the council, and it's offensive in our age too, isn't it? It's offensive. It's a modern-day heresy. The world hates this last statement. Jesus alone saves. There's pushback, even hostility. Christians are called bigoted, narrow-minded, on the wrong side of history. Jesus is on trial everywhere in the world all the time. Just consider the speed with which attitudes have changed in our own nation toward Christianity. Um, I grew up in the 50s, kind of, you know, in the 60s. So I'm old enough to remember there was a day in our country when everyone just assumed the Judeo-Christian ethic. That's what it was called. It doesn't mean everybody was a Christian. They were hardly. But it just meant there was this foundation that we understand. Stealing is bad. Theft is bad. Uh, you know, uh, uh, adultery is bad. Lying is bad. I mean, we understood that. But that changed rather rapidly to live and let live. By the time I became a Christian and I was sharing my faith with my family and my friends, invariably I'd get this response. Well, I'm really glad for you. That's okay for you. I'm really glad. You need that. You, Bob, you need that. You need something because you're just a mess. You, you need that. I don't need that. I don't need I'm okay. I'm good. Just don't talk to me about that anymore. I have, never mind. Um, by the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, a number of neo-atheists, uh, guys who were really evangelistic, I guess you might say, about atheism, were writing books. One of them that, that just was like a thunderclap, the title was, God is Not Good, How Religion Poisons Everything in the World. And, and that was, that's beyond live and let live. That's, Christianity is evil and bad, and today, Every effort that can be made to silence Christianity from the public square is happening. There's a, a school, a Christian school in Louisville, Kentucky, um, that I heard about. And one of the headlines of this, they had an assignment for the students. And one of the headlines uh, about this school was, was, you know, like breaking news. Christian school uh, is teaching Christian doctrine. It's like everybody be scared. They were. That's where we're at today. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I get a sense that this kind of pressure and opposition is right at the doorsteps of the church. It's falling everywhere else, and it's getting that close. So my question then becomes, what can we learn from this? What, what, what does this have to teach us? We're not, we're not being hauled into court at this point, at least so far, um, but but is there anything in here that we can learn? Of course we can, because there's opposition to the gospel. You have probably experienced it in your own family life or your friends' lives. You know it. You sense it. You feel it. So what, what can we do? And, and I think I, there's four things here I think that we can do. First of all, be prepared. Secondly, don't panic. Third, expect power from the Spirit. And finally, proclaim the name. And here's what I mean. Be prepared. This is what Peter wrote in one of his letters to the churches that were being persecuted in his day. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be afraid of man, is what he's saying, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, do this instead. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Very important phrase. 
always being prepared to make a defense of anybody who asks about the hope in you. So what Peter is saying, by the way, that almost sounded contradictory to me. Like Jesus said, don't give a thought about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give it to you. And then you have Peter over here saying, be prepared. Well, I think their emphasis are different. For Peter, Peter is saying, it is a natural thing for us to be afraid of people's opinions of us. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, you know what I really love? Rejection. Anybody? Nobody? And when we share the gospel, we feel that rejection. We feel it. It gets really personal. And Peter is saying, look, if you don't want to fear man, but rather fear God, set Christ apart in your heart every single day, every waking moment of every day, as the Lord who is holy. He's calling on an Old Testament name for God, which means the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the armies. You're in an army, you got an army with you. So, so prepare yourself that way. And then, in the heat of the moment, don't panic. Don't panic. Take a breath. Fix your heart on the sovereignty of God. Remind yourself that the circumstances you just walked into were prepared for you long ago by God before the foundation of the world so that you might have something good to say about Jesus. Just remember Esther, Queen Esther, in, in the book of Esther. You know, what did Mordecai say to her? How do you know, Esther, if God hasn't brought you to this time and place for such a time as this? There you are. You're right there. You're right where God wants you. He has placed you there. And then expect power. We, we, we read here, didn't we, that, that Peter was filled with the Spirit. Expect power. And here's how that power comes. You are not speaking alone. Whenever you witness for Christ, you're not witnessing alone. Jesus said, my father witnesses to me through my words and my works. He said that in John 5, I believe. So the father is the chief witness to Jesus. He is the chief he is saying, this is my son. By the things he says, by the works he does, this is my son. I am telling you, as if he is on trial, he is my son doing these things. So the father is now speaking through you as you speak for Christ. Not only that, the Holy Spirit gets involved, right? Peter was filled with the Spirit. He then starts to speak about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's role is sort of like the executive He's the executive who takes the words that you're saying, the witness of the Father about the Son, and applying it to your audience in their hearts. His role is to convict the heart of its need for Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. So every single time you're like flustered and you're saying all the wrong things and you get, you know, it's like, well, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, he was like born in Bethlehem and then, and then they had to run and they had to go to Egypt and, and then they came back and thought, no, we'll go to, you know, and you're doing this geography lesson. And, 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 and your audience is wondering, like, when is this ever going to be over? Listen, even those lame words, even those faltering thoughts are seed in the hands of the Father who's the chief witness and the Spirit who is the executive witness for the Son's witness. Have you, I, mean, I know that you've done this, right? Three, you, 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 inter, you have an interaction with somebody 
and you just walk away going, that was the, that was the worst presentation of the gospel I've ever done, right? And then three days later, you go, oh, man, if I had only said. How many of you have ever been there? Done that? Yeah, don't worry about it. Just, it's okay. It's okay. We're lame. We get it. But God is doing the work. We can't see the work that God does. It's a seed that's planted. We can't see it. And who knows if that seed won't spring up into eternal life someday. And we may never see it. But how do you know? You don't. So even though you've done your best to plan and you get all freaked out and, and you're not really sure about what you're saying, just go ahead and present the name of Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting. Peter says at least uh, uh, six times in chapters 2 to 5, this is my paraphrase, you killed him, God raised him. He says something like that six separate times to different audiences. Man, you would think this, like Pastor Jamie says, this is no way to gain a crowd. But I think there's something more going on in Peter than just laying blame. He's certainly laying the guilt out for them. He wants them to know, you guys, you rejected Christ, you had him crucified, you are guilty of a cosmic crime. You are guilty of the worst crime that's ever been, ever been performed in all of history and never will be performed again. You are guilty of all of that. But I want to tell you something. If Jesus stayed in the grave, you're dead. But because God raised him, you have a chance to come to Christ and receive forgiveness. If God didn't raise him, it's all over. But God raised him. And even your sin, even your sin that executed the Son of God, murdered him, crime, even your sin that executed him is now in his hands the way to execute your salvation. So it gets completely turned around on them. And they could say, you mean Jesus would forgive me for rejecting him? Of course, of course, because we all did. We may not have nailed him to the cross personally, but we may as well have. And he forgives those who come to him in repentance. This is what I think is lying underneath the motive of Peter saying, you killed him, God raised him. God raised him, and if he's not raised from the dead, we're all finished. And so... The resurrection proves that second chances and more are available and the new reality for all sinners who put their trust in Christ. I'm going to close in prayer for two, two folks that may be here this morning. The first is, are those, those people who say, you know, I'm, I'm not there. I thought my sin had left yeah, I, I was left behind. There, there was no way I could even think that God would accept me because of all the stuff I've done. I hope you understand from what we've just looked at that there is no sin beyond God's grace. He will save to the uttermost, the uttermost parts of the earth and the uttermost parts of sin. The second group I want to pray for are people like us who get all tongue-tied, you know, and, and stammer, and we do our best, and we feel lame, that God will just help us. God will just help us. 
We'll do what we need to do to prepare. God will help us to do that. And then, and then, like Peter says, we'll be ready. We'll be ready with a good answer that witnesses and testifies to the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have taught us. And we knew this, but now we love it. That there is no other name under heaven whereby anybody can be saved except the name of your son, Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I want to pray for anyone here this morning who um, doesn't know you, maybe considering what kind of relationship they might have with you if, if, they, if they dare to enter into it. So Father, I pray for them, that you will show them the beauty of Christ, the greatness of his forgiveness, that they'll be able to say, once I was lame, but now I walk like the lame man did. And they will rejoice like the lame man did, praising God. For those of us, Lord, here who are really tongue-tied people when it comes to sharing our faith with others or giving a reason for the hope that's in us, Father, I pray that you will just give us, give us wisdom, help us to prepare what we need to to be able to say, to, to memorize it if necessary, to be succinct in it, not to say any more, not to say any less than that Jesus saves sinners. It's a trustworthy saying. And so help us to be able to have confidence the way Peter and John did, to have confidence that we can say, listen, there isn't any other way of salvation. I know you may not like it, but the fact of the matter is if you go looking, you'll find nothing. If you look to Jesus, you'll find everything. So give us the confidence to be able to say that, even though we may risk being rejected. Father, we commit all of these things, we commit ourselves into your hands this morning, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.